We're in the middle of a study in the Gospel of Luke. I'd invite you, if you have a Bible, to turn to Luke chapter 12. Uh, and in just a second, uh, well, I'm going to raise the question, uh, how do we, uh, as disciples of Jesus, engage with our culture? Uh, what does it look like for us to, to be in the world, as Peter says, but, but not of the world? Uh, and yet, how do we make an impact on the folks around us? Uh, now, uh, I'm going to show you one way that you can engage with the culture. And again, if you would watch the screen. being here is to obey the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, our Savior, to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And you got some real creatures here at the Marilyn Manson concert. Creatures, anti-Christ creatures, uh, pro-Satan creatures, uh, heathen creatures. Um, and so I need to, uh, and the church of Jesus Christ needs to tell them to repent. They're going to go to hell if they continue this type of activity. How does that, uh, how does that video strike you uh, as you look at that? Uh, hopefully it makes you just a little bit uncomfortable. At first you kind of snicker just a bit, but then as you, uh, as you listen to the tone of the message, not necessarily the content, but as you... As you look at the body language and you listen to the tone of voice and you hear uh, a sense of arrogance, uh, a sense of condemnation, a, a sense of, of rudeness, uh, perhaps your, uh, your uh, reaction to that as you saw it was to be a bit offended, uh, to be a bit bothered by it. Perhaps uh, your reaction was to say, well, I'm certainly glad that that's not the approach that I take uh, when sh- with sharing with other, uh, with other folks that aren't believers. Uh, you may have just thought, you know, the guy's whacked out. He's just kind of a, a nutty guy. The reason I showed you that, uh, that tape was not to suggest to you that we should look at someone like that and judge them, but rather uh, I, I simply want to, uh, to point out and to suggest, and I think I'm accurate in this, uh, that when our society in general thinks about, about Christianity, when the, when the world that doesn't know Jesus uh, thinks about the word Christian or, or the word evangelicals, friends, that's the picture that they have in their minds. Uh, there isn't an, an understanding that uh, there's, there's a different group of folks that are following Jesus that maybe have a different approach to how they share with others, but rather uh, most people outside the kingdom of God, when you ask them what they think of the word evangelical, when you ask them what they think of the word Christian, that, that's what they're thinking of. Uh, there's been a study that's been done by David Kinneman uh, who wrote a book called Unchristian. I suggest you take a look at it if you get a chance. And I'm not going to run through everything he said in that book. It was a great read. But there, there are several statistics that he points out that I'll share with you this morning to reinforce my point. Uh, he did a study of 16 to 26-year-olds. And in that age range, 55% of young people between the ages of 16 and 26, when they saw the word Christian or saw the word evangelical, they had either a bad or a very bad reaction very bad impression of Christianity. 87 for, 80, 87% of the same people in that group identified Christians. The number one word they used to identify Christians was judgmental. Uh, and 91% of the people in that group that were surveyed said 
uh, they didn't know so much about what Christians stood for, but they certainly knew what they were against. Uh, and they saw uh, kind of the, the public conversation that goes on in our culture as being fueled uh, by Christians and all of the things that they're against. Now, some of this criticism is fair, and perhaps some of it is unfounded, uh, but it begs the question, and the question I asked before we put the video up on the screen is, how should you and I, if we're disciples of Jesus, how should we engage with our culture? Now, there's, there's a couple different ways you can look at it. One is you can say, well, you know, if people think badly of us, if they condemn us without really getting to know us, if they, uh, if they don't understand our message, then that negativity could kind of be a badge of honor. You know, boy, we, we stood for Jesus. We had our feet firmly planted for Jesus, and we wouldn't be moved by any of those creatures. <laughs> you kind of hear that uh, tone ringing in the background. Or perhaps we could decide we need to, to hire a PR firm <laughs> and recreate the entire image. There is a chasm uh, between the culture that doesn't know Jesus and disciples of Jesus. And the question is, how do we bridge that chasm? Should we bridge that chasm? How do we interact? How do we engage with our culture? Now, look this, look this morning at Luke chapter 12, uh, just three verses, verses 51, 52, and 53. And I've entitled the sermon, The Jesus That You've Never Met, because the words that we're going to read are a direct quote from Jesus. He's teaching his disciples. Uh, and it isn't perhaps quite as, as pleasant as we would hope or as, as gracious sounding as it hope, we would hope. And, and perhaps this is not a side of Jesus of which you're aware, but I think it will lead us into this conversation about how we engage with our culture. So here, the word of God, Luke chapter 12, verses 51 through 53. Jesus says to his disciples, do you think that I have come to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son, son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him be glory. Let's pray. Father, every day we walk a fine line. Those of us in this room who call ourselves disciples of Jesus and and long to be used by you to share your gospel and your truth in this world, uh, at times we we feel ill-equipped for that task. There are times where we see uh, certain things in our culture that make us angry and make us frustrated. We don't understand why uh, choices are made sometimes that are made, lifestyles are lived that are lived. And yet at other times, Father, our our hearts break over our own judgmentalism. And we want to find a way to to reach out and to care and to love others in Christ. So, Lord Jesus, as we come to this passage where you warned your disciples that there may be a, a nuance here that they hadn't considered, that there may be a side to the gospel that needs to be understood, I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds what you want to say to us. Again, Father, the the words of man are just not important. They carry no weight. It is only the the word of God that will stand forever. So, Lord Jesus, I pray that your word would be applied to our hearts and lives this morning. Forgive me for my sin. Forgive me for standing in the way of what you want to do. And this morning, I pray that you you would move me out of the way and that you would speak directly to your people 
your truth and your word, that we might hear it and know it and love you because you have first loved us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is certainly a Jesus that perhaps you're, you're not all that familiar with unless you're a, a serious, serious student of the Gospels. It's these moments where Jesus offers these kinds of words that, that kind of make you sit up and go, now, now wait a minute, that doesn't, that doesn't sound quite right. And so before we, uh, before we launch in specifically to the question about engaging with our culture, we need to look at this message. We need to see the divisive nature of Jesus' message in this text. And the question we, that we're, that's being answered is, why is there turmoil? Why, why is there this, uh, this um, uh, at odds, so to speak, between followers of Jesus and Jesus himself? And, and actually, wait a second, Jesus, how can you say that, that you've come to bring division instead of peace? You know, Isaiah called the Messiah the Prince of Peace, and you claim to be the Messiah. You know, we, we sing every year the Christmas carols, angels we have heard on high, and, and they were singing what? Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Jesus, you taught in the Beatitudes, blessed are the peacemakers, for they're the ones who will inherit the earth. And now you're turning around and you're saying, I didn't come to bring peace, I came to bring division. What gives, Jesus? <laughs> Which one are you? Are you the Prince of Peace or are you the one who comes to stir up a fight? I think the answer to the question is yes and, and not either or. Because on the one hand, Jesus' life, Jesus' ministry, his death on the cross, his resurrection, all of that was put into place in order for us to be at peace with God, to be in right standing with God. I'm going to take just a moment and try and explain that. And for those of you that are here this morning, they're maybe uh, searching or you're not sure about Christianity, you're a bit skeptical about the message of the gospel. I'm going to try to, in three very succinct and simple points, explain this message that causes some division. The first thing that Jesus' life and ministry points to is the fact that man has a problem. If I could put it in the very simplest terms, it would simply be that man has a problem. And the problem is not between us. The problem is not between nations. The problem is not between spouses that don't get along. The most serious problem that we have is a problem with a holy and a righteous God. Because we are under God's judgment. We are under God's wrath because of two words that the Bible uses, because of sin and transgressions. And those of you that have been at Green Tree before have heard me point these out, but I'm going to do it again for the sake of those who may not have heard this. A sin, according to the Bible, is, is not living up to everything you could do. I was driving down the highway the other day. I saw a guy walking away from his car carrying a, uh, a gas can. And I thought to myself two things. The first thing I thought to myself was I should probably pull over and help that guy and take him to a gas station. And the second thing I thought was he's probably an ax murderer. He uses the gas can to get people to pull over and take him to drive to the gas station. Then he does them in. Guess which thought won out? I didn't do all that I could have. I didn't harm him by not stopping, but I didn't help him. That's called a sin, as simply as it can be. The second part of man's problem is not only that we don't always do the very best we possibly can, but that we actually uh, commit transgressions, which is just a word that means we rebel against God's law. We know what the right thing is to do, but we don't do it. Okay, so it's not that, that we're confused. It's not that we don't get it. We know we're supposed to go this direction, and instead we go that direction. When Cindy and I were, were married early on in our marriage, the first four or five years in our marriage, when we really thought the most important thing in life was to win the argument, 
You remember those days? Hopefully you got over them pretty quickly. I was a pretty slow learner. It took me five or six years to get past that stage of, of my foolishness and my arrogance. But I would know the words that would bother Cindy the most. And I would know how I could just very smugly and very, you know, self-righteously just kind of sit back and, and wait for Cindy to get frustrated with me and wait for her to raise my voice or raise her voice. And it was all my fault she was. But she'd get kind of mad and she'd get kind of hot under the collar and she'd, you know, she'd start going at it. And I would just sit there going, now, you know, that's really not a very mature way to handle an adult discussion, is it? You know, now the women in the church, if you had a gun right now, you'd shoot me. I understand that. My point is I was in rebellion, Okay. My point is I was purposely doing something I knew I wasn't supposed to do, brought no health, brought no life to our marriage. The Bible says I'm guilty of both of those. I don't do everything I should, and there are times when I'm really bad and I do the things I ought not do. And you know what else? The Bible says that's you. That defines your life. And there isn't a person in this room that could stand up here this morning and say, I haven't committed one of both or both of those actions. Every one of us has been in situations where we haven't done all that we could. Every one of us has been in situations where we said, you know what, I know it's wrong, but I'm going to go ahead and do it anyway. Man has a problem, and Jesus' life points to that problem. The second thing that Jesus' coming offers is this, that God gives the solution, that you don't have to try and scratch your head and figure out, okay, what am I going to do now that I find myself in this conundrum? How am I going to get out of it? The theme verse for the study that we're doing in Luke is Luke 19, chapter chapter 19, verse 10. Jesus is talking to Zacchaeus, the tax collector, and he says this, the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Now, you can say a lot of things about Jesus. You can say he was a teacher. You can say he was a healer. You can say he was a prophet. You can say he was a rabbi. And all of those things would be accurate to a point, but they all miss the point if you don't understand that Jesus is the Savior that that is the reason behind his coming, that God was offering a solution. God said there has to be a price paid for sins committed. All that rebellion isn't going to go unpunished or unchecked. Uh, A great action-adventure movie that's actually a pretty good uh, movie for the family is is National Treasure with Nicolas Cage. Uh, And there's a scene in that movie where it's coming to the the end of the movie, and uh, Nicolas Cage's character, uh, uh, Ben Gates, has figured out the, the, the treasure and all this, and the FBI was chasing him down, and now he's sitting down with the FBI agent, and he's offering him this solution that, he, that he's found to the problem. And he says to the FBI agent, you know, now that he's explained it all, and, and what I really want is I really want not to go to jail. I, I can't tell you how much, uh, Agent Sandusky, I don't want to go to jail. And the agent looks at him and says, well, Ben, somebody's got to go to jail <laughs> because a crime had been committed. And God is the same in his justice. A crime has been committed against God and someone has to pay. And God offers that solution through Jesus. Jesus says, I know that they're sinners. I know that they're the ones who have done it wrong. I know that their choices have been bad. I know the intentions of their heart have been evil, but I will take their place. Not only does man have a problem, but God offers the solution. And the third part of the spoke in this wheel is simply this. You have a choice. You have to determine if what I just told you is true or not. Because it is an eternal question, and it's not just for this life, but it's for all of eternity. All of your eternal existence hangs in the balance. So you weren't created for 70 or 80 or 100 years, or I saw on the email or on the web the other day, 113-year-old man. That's pretty good. That's pretty impressive, okay? But you weren't created to live 113 years. You were created to be an everlasting creature to be in relationship with God forever. But because of sin, that relationship has been broken and Christ is now restoring it. But you have a choice. Is that right? 
Jesus pays the price and he offers that salvation. But he says to you, I am the way. I offer it to everyone freely. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. It doesn't say, but only the the people that uh, look this way or only the people that believe this or only people that act that way or only people that are good enough. It says, whosoever will believe, that's your choice. But Jesus also says this later on in John chapter 14, verse 6, no one comes to the Father but by me. You see, Jesus isn't offering you one option of many. Salvation is not found at a smorgasbord. Salvation is found at the banquet table of Jesus Christ and no place else. And Jesus says, I give it to you freely, but it's through me. I am the only way for you to have salvation. And some people rejoice in that and get excited and put their faith in Christ and they accept him as their savior. That's the way we we say it around the church. There are other people who say, I don't believe it. I don't buy it. I reject it. And friends, therein lies the tension. Therein is the division about which Jesus speaks in verse 51. You think I've come to bring peace on the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. Why? Because some reject, some accept. And Jesus even brings it home to to the family. In a house, there'll be three divided against two. One will believe, one won't believe is the idea that that he's saying there. And I had that experience in my life growing up. I grew up in a home where my mom was a believer and my dad wasn't. Now, I wasn't the greatest evangelist in my family, but I can, I can tell you that there were a number of times, starting when I was a pretty young kid, where I would try to say to my dad, Dad, why don't you believe in Jesus? I remember college when I sat down and I wrote him a two or three-page letter, and I just you know, pleaded with him, you need to put your faith in Christ. And every time I talked with my dad, I got the same reaction. I'm just not interested. That might be okay for you, but it's not for me. There's tension even within our own families. And disciples have to be okay with the friction. You've got to be okay with Jesus' words. You have to understand that there's going to be tension created simply because there's a choice that is demanded. And perhaps this is the Jesus that you've never met. Because one of our temptations is to, well, let's just water down the, the message. Let's just say, you know, if everybody's good enough, everybody will probably end up in heaven eventually. No, that's not what Scripture says, and we can't back off of the truth. And Jesus didn't back off the truth. He didn't bandy his words. He didn't try to uh, to pull punches. He didn't flatter people about their sin and tell them to ignore the true condition of their hearts just because he wanted to gain followers. Rather, he offered his life, but he offered it as the Lord who demands that we surrender, that you surrender and I surrender every other means by which we think we're going to gain eternal life. And friends, that's what Green Tree Community Church believes. As long as we have life and breath in our lungs, that is the message that we will preach and we will preach it without shame. And we will preach it without reservation and we will seek to be faithful to Christ and not pull any punches and to offer that choice to everyone who will listen. But the simple fact of the matter is it is a divisive message because there are probably people in this room right now that say, yep, that's for me. And there are probably other people in this room that say, no way don't have anything to do with it, don't want to hear about it. And therein lies the divisiveness. But there's another side to this. And I'm going to, I'm going to step away from the text for a minute. 
and I'm going to offer you just some observations that I've taken out of Scripture, but, but not specifically out of this text. Because I, I want to suggest to you this, and I'm going to say it a couple times because I got, I got hooked on Ds as I was thinking through this in my mind. So here's how it goes. A demanding decision, okay, Jesus is saying you need to put your faith in me. A demanding decision does not equal a demeaning disposition. Let me say that again. A demanding decision does not equal a demeaning disposition. In other words, the gospel may offend someone. Somebody say, I don't want that. I reject it out of hand. I don't like it. But it's different between the gospel offending and me being an offensive, rude, obnoxious person. And I want to talk about that for a few moments because I believe that when, when, uh, when Kinnaman talked to this age group of people, when he, when he engaged with them on these questions about the Bible and about Christianity and about evangelicals, one of the things he found in this group that the majority of which had a negative impression about Christianity was that the vast majority of them, well over 85% of the people surveyed, had a church background. They were around people who called themselves disciples of Jesus. And yet in some way there was a disconnect from Jesus and from his followers that made the message of Christ seem uh, wrong to them and easier to reject because of the experiences they had had in a church. And friends, we have to be on our toes. We have to be mindful of this because we have folks come through our doors every Sunday morning who have never been here before. Green Tree is an easy place to get to. Manchester Road is real simple. I, somebody stopped me last week. I always say to people, hey, I stand over there after the service. Somebody came up after the service, shook hands, began to talk to them. And I always ask the same question. And if you introduce yourself to me this morning, I'll give you a prep. You can get ready. I always say, how'd you find out about Green Tree? I'm, I'm just kind of curious whether a friend brought you or you, you know, knew somebody from work or you saw us on the webpage. So it's just a, a question. I'm just curious to ask nothing really agenda behind it. And the folks that, that I met last week said, oh, we saw the sign. We've been seeing the sign for about three weeks. We moved to St. Louis about a month ago. And we finally said, okay, we got we to gotta stop in there. Friends, folks come by all the time and visit us. What will they think about Jesus when they leave? A lot of that depends not just on the message that is preached, but on the lives that are lived in front of them. So I'm going to give you four suggestions, four things to think about this morning. Again, they're not specifically from this text, but I think that they'll at least be some fodder for conversation. I would think that if you sat down around the lunch table this afternoon uh, or spent some time together this evening or with friends, you could probably come up with a list of 10 or 12 more. These are just kind of to get the idea rolling in your head, to get you to think and pray about and to get me to think and pray about uh, how we need to make sure we are not demeaning as we present the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'm not too long, but here's four. First one's this. Build friendships, don't establish targets. <laughs> build friendships, don't establish targets. Engage with somebody just for, the, just for the sake of engaging with them. Be a friend to them just for the, for the sake of being a friend to them. They don't have to, to, to have a bullseye, Jesus bullseye on their chest. Do you want to share your faith with them? Sure you do. Absolutely. Do you want to have the opportunity to point them to Jesus if they don't know him? Absolutely. Because that's what a friend would do. Not somebody who's trying to get a notch in their Bible gun belt, so to speak. I was talking with a guy, and this is years ago. Uh, it had to be at least a dozen years ago. And I was talking to a guy about this subject. And he said, you know, I've been trying to share my faith with this one guy. And I think it might have been his cousin. I'm not sure. It was somebody he knew, he had known for years. He said, I've been talking year after year, this guy, you know, finally I've come to the conclusion, uh, pardon me for saying this, to hell with him. I said, excuse me? <laughs> he said, he goes, I'm just giving up. I, he, he's, 
he, he's going the wrong direction, and I, and I just I got to stop caring. I just got to stop investing. He was a target, not, not a friend. And I'm sitting there thinking, we follow the guy who, who was coming to Jerusalem, and we'll see this uh, next spring when we get into this part of the text in Luke. We, we follow a guy who came to Jerusalem, and when he looked over the city of the people that were going to murder him, he broke down and he wept. Not because he was angry, but because he was brokenhearted that they didn't see the day of salvation. We claim to follow a guy who, when he was hanging on a cross, said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. We follow a person who established relationships with all kinds of broken, sinful people just because he loved them. So I want to encourage us to ask that question of ourselves. Am I establishing friendships? Am I establishing relationships? Am I establishing targets? One of the things that came out of that survey was people said that, you know, they had met Christians and had a pretty positive experience, but a certain group in that sample said, after I rejected Christianity, they stopped being my friend. (laughs) Enough said. Secondly, be transparent with your struggles. Be transparent with your struggles. Christianity is not about good people but it is about a good and gracious guy, uh, not God. Not, not to pick on the guy on the, on the DVD, but, but it seems as if he'd never sinned. <laughs> seemed like he had never done anything wrong, and he was here to help all of these creatures you know, find out his way of life. And I think there are times when we are tempted to, to cover up what we've done wrong because if somebody knew that, that I was an imperfect follower of Jesus, then they might not put their faith in him. Friends, I want to suggest to you that exactly the opposite is true. Unless you can explain to people your need for Christ, why would they ever bother? I have three different groups of guys I meet with on three different mornings of the week. And in each one of those groups, I try to, uh, I try to talk about my sin. And I, I try not, it's not like I'm bragging about my sin, but I try to talk about the real temptations in my life. And I ask them to pray for me, and I ask them to hold me accountable. And I listen to them as they share their stories. And uh, when we first started, and I first started sharing some of my stuff from time to time, you know, kind of guys' eyebrows would would go up. Like, you know, we didn't think the preacher kind of thought about those things or or had those kind of experiences. And and I said, well, I'm just making them up to make you guys feel better. But (laughs) when they understood I wasn't kidding around with them, and and I was really being honest about the, the blackness in my own heart, the darkness of sin in my own heart, they began to, to feel a little bit more comfortable about sharing their own sin. And we began to grow in Christ together. And I think for the unbeliever, if we're going to paint the need of salvation, it's not always saying you have a problem, you need a savior, but rather it's I have as big a problem, if not bigger than you. And I desperately need a savior and he has found me. Be transparent with your struggles. Third recommendation this morning is this. Don't make morality the gospel. Don't make morality the gospel. Now, friends, I'm all for morality, okay? I'm all for wholesomeness. I'm all for, for a culture that lives in, in godly uh, directives and, and under uh, scriptural uh, design. I think there's great morality. Uh, read, the, read the Beatitudes. If everybody would just spend all our lives trying to follow the Beatitudes, the world would be a much better place in which we live. But morality and the gospel are not the same thing. I 
mentioned earlier about the theme verse in Luke being Jesus' encounter with Zacchaeus. And I mentioned that Zacchaeus was a tax collector. And for those of you that may not know, tax collectors in Jesus' day were, were, they were the out, they, they were on the outs. You hated tax collectors because they were, they were in business with the Romans, with your oppressors to extort money from you. So if you were a business person, if you're an entrepreneur, if you ran any kind of shop, if you were in any kind of retail, Zacchaeus would come to your door with his big guards and he would say, okay, your taxes are, you know, a hundred dollars this month. And by the way, you're going to put another hundred dollars in because I got all kinds of expenses and he ripped people off. And if you refused to do it, he had, you know, the big, the big army guys behind him and you couldn't refuse. And, and, and he basically spent his life, Zacchaeus spent his life extorting money from his fellow countrymen. And you being an instrument of oppression against his fellow countrymen. There's no question that he was hated and despised by everybody in his neighborhood. People wouldn't want to be around him. And yet when Jesus engages with Zacchaeus, Jesus doesn't say, hey, Zach, we got to talk about extortion. <laughs> we got to talk about your bullying tactics. We got to talk about being honest as a representative of the government. We've got to talk about making sure that you're an upright guy. He didn't start there. Jesus said, hey, Zacchaeus, would you get out of the tree? Because I want to come to your house. I want to have lunch. I want to talk. Now, what followed <laughs> was Zacchaeus's brokenhearted confession that Christ had changed his life. Jesus, if I've cheated anybody, I will pay them back, and I'll pay them back four times what I owe. You see, friends, there is a place for morality, but the change comes as we know Christ and his grace and his mercy, and we've got to get it in that order. We can't flip the cart because if we flip the cart, we simply become about issues instead of about Jesus. Do I want people like Zacchaeus to become honest and generous and gracious? Yes, but the only way they're going to get to that point is if their heart is broken over their sin and they realize that they've had a problem and that God has offered the solution and they put their faith in him. Don't make morality the gospel. And the fourth suggestion for you to think about this morning, for for me to think about this morning is this. Simply be an instrument of God's grace. Not your grace, not my grace, but God's grace. And God's grace is unconditional. You didn't do anything to earn God's love. You couldn't have possibly done anything to earn God's love. I know because I spent part of my life trying to do it and it's impossible and I'm a pretty good guy. (laughs) I go to work at a church every day. Can you beat that? You know, if you want to start checking off the list, I've worked pretty hard at it. I can tell you right now, nothing I've ever done in my life except crying out to Jesus for his grace puts me in right standing with God. And I want to be an instrument of that grace. I want to be an instrument of that grace that looks at somebody like Tom Ricks for all the junk in his life, all the bad decisions he's made, all, the, all the, those five, six years where he treated his wife awful. And he says, I'm going to be gracious and compassionate to you. I'm going to love you unconditionally. We need to let the compassion of Christ flow through us. Two examples of how that works and doesn't work. 14th century Europe probably close to 50 million people died in the Black Death, the bubonic plague, the 14th century. The people in Europe that had the means to get out of the city, had the wealth to find someplace else to go and live in order to avoid being killed by this destructive pestilence, got out of the cities as fast as they possibly could in order to try and save their lives and the lives of their families. But there was another group of people that were going into the cities, back into the cities, they weren't people that had a whole lot of money. They weren't people that had very many, many means. They were, they were the, the church leaders of their day. They were the local priests, the local pastors. 
the elders, the deacons of the local churches. They were people who said, I'm going to go where the sick and the dying are to offer the grace of God. And it cost them their lives. They weren't spared. (laughs) The vast majority of those folks died in the process. Let the grace of God flow through you. Be an instrument of that grace. In the early 1980s, the AIDS pandemic broke out all over the United States. The homosexual community was devastated through death and suffering, a, a, a death that you can't possibly imagine. What was the church's response? Well, I guess this is God's judgment, finally showing those, those homosexuals how wrong they are. We've never recovered since. You can't meet a gay person who finds out you're a pastor of a church who doesn't put his defenses up or her defenses up right away and say, I don't want to have anything to do with you. You're not about grace. You're about judgment. Friends, I I believe there's a time and a place to talk about sexual purity. No question about it. I don't believe that homosexuality is a healthy lifestyle anymore that I believe lying or cheating or stealing or yelling at Cindy when we were first married for the first few years of our lives was a good lifestyle for me. But that isn't the point. The point is that God has called me and he has called you if you're a disciple of Jesus to allow his grace to flow through you to anybody in any setting in any place. Because his grace found you, and he wants it to be used by you to find others. How does the Christian engage with their culture? Two ways. One is to share the message of the gospel. Don't hold back. Don't water it down. Don't don't change the message because you want somebody to like you. People have a problem, and God has offered the solution, and we need to help them see that so they can put their faith in Christ. But we do that in a way that's filled with grace and mercy and compassion. We reach out to people the same way Jesus has engaged with us. Let's pray. Father, perhaps this is the the Jesus that we don't know very well, the one who says there will be division. (laughs) There will be strife on account of me on account of this message that I am offering. Lord Jesus, I pray that we would have the faith not to back away from that, that we wouldn't uh, run away from the tension or try to, to soothe it by watering down the gospel, but that we would boldly and courageously say, this is the truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. But actually, Lord, this morning, I'm I'm more afraid that the Jesus we don't know is the gracious Jesus, is the one who is compassionate, the one who is merciful, the one who said to a man on a road one day who everybody despised, hey, let's go have lunch at your house. And probably all of his friends looked at him and thought, have you lost your mind? Do you not know how terrible this person is? And yet that's when he uttered the words, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. So, Father, let us remember the truth about Jesus and always stand on that, but do so in a way that reflects his grace and his mercy to a world that so desperately needs to know that there is salvation, there is forgiveness, there is hope. Pray in his name. Amen.